If you have a, a Bible with you this morning, I would ask that you turn it to Psalm 52, as we will be reading through that psalm and thinking through that psalm. As we go to the Word this morning, we are reminded of where we are. This continues a sermon series that we've had on prayer. Um, we started the sermon series almost a month ago now in the book of Matthew as we thought on why we should pray, what are the reasons for us to pray. We looked at Exodus 32 as a model for how we ought to pray for others in intercessory prayer. We then looked at Psalm 51 last week as we thought about through a model for how we should pray in terms of repentance. And this week we go to the next psalm, Psalm 52, for help and guidance and how we ought to pray for thanksgiving. How should we be thankful? Thanksgiving is something that we are all called to do. It doesn't take much to note that if you read through any of the psalms, you'll find this pleading for giving thanks from God's people is writ large in it. Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 33, verses 1 and 2, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And even the last verse of that psalm, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is just a, a easy, quick view of what the Psalms have to say about giving thanks that we ought to be doing it for God is good to us at all times. And if anything, the New Testament increases and ratchets up the amount of thanksgiving that we should give. In Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20, Paul writes that you are not to get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but you are to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'm thinking that Paul kind of covers the situations there, right? So you are to give thanks always and for everything. We should be clear that this is not just something that kind Christians do. This isn't just something that Christians who have had good things handed to them are to do. Paul knew his fair share of sufferings, and yet he says, at all times, for everything, give thanks to God. It is that for everything that we will turn today. Because there are two distinct problems with giving thanks to God in this world. One of them seems like it shouldn't be a problem, and that is prosperity. It turns out that God giving us good things is very clearly something that can remove us from thanking him. But difficult circumstances will also move us away from thanking him. Either way we go, our sin is prone to take us away from thanking God. As a matter of fact, if you were to look up the chapter that is going out of its way to describe the difficulties of humanity before God and the sinfulness of humanity before God, Romans 1, the last half of it, might be the place that you would turn. And there you would find these words from Paul. 
Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For, although they knew God, they, they knew him. They can look outside. They see the stars. They see the mountains. They see the rivers. Paul says, that is enough. You know that there is a God who has made this. You know something of his divine nature. This stuff doesn't make this stuff. And you know something of his divine power. The God who can make volcanoes. The God who can make thunderstorms. The God who can make hurricanes is a mighty God indeed. You know something of that. Although you might not know the fullness of it, you know something of it. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Isn't that astounding? All of human sin is entrapped by Paul in two things, not honoring God as God and not giving him thanks. It turns out then that as Christians redeemed and brought back into a relationship with God, one of the things that we ought to do is give him thanks, but giving thanks is indeed difficult. Again, prosperity is a problem. In a world where so much is explained by the natural processes of the world, we can begin to think that we give ourselves the good things that we have. We get food from the store or the restaurant. We turn on the tap for clean water. We turn on the TV for our entertainment. We, we turn, we push, we pull, we call, we order. We can do everything ourselves, and it shows up at our door in two days or less because every single one of you has Amazon Prime because Bezos is worth like $85 billion dollars. Right? So all of you can have everything you want at your fingertips in two days or less, and you don't even need to leave the house. God warns of prosperity, leading away from focus on him. Even in Deuteronomy 8, he talks about, when I give you all this good stuff, you're going to be pulled away, and you're going to forget that I was the one who gave it to you. And we're going to deal with that problem next week. But this week, we're going to deal with the problem of difficulties and despair and treachery and horribleness that happens in the world. And how do we give thanks to God when evil surrounds us, when bad things are the lot that we have been given in life? To be sure, as we walk through the world, we will be given pain, we will be given difficulty, we will be given destruction. Your life will be eventually washed away and destroyed. You will watch as you get older. Your body will begin to lose its function. You will begin to get sick in ways that you were not sick before. Disaster can strike at any time. There are wet roads. There are deer that can cross in front of you when you are unexpectedly driving. There are a number of ways that God can bring your life to an end or even crush your body there are a number of things that can happen outside of you where you will have difficulties in this world. There's any of a number of things that can happen in this world. And the question becomes, as Job 2.10 says, when Job has everything taken away from him and his wife looks at him and says, listen, this can all be over real quick. Just curse God and die. And Job, who is a righteous man, says this to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? 
That is, can, are we only supposed to expect that God gives us kind things and give him thanks and speak well of him in the kind things that he gives us? Do we not also have the need and the desire to give thanks to God for, as Paul says, everything, including the difficult things that he gives us? As it turns out, this particular psalm is a wonderful example of exactly that. The focus of the psalm really comes down to verse 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it. And we can focus on that. But in so doing, if we only focus on that verse, we miss the entire setup of the psalm, which deepens the thankfulness that Paul, or excuse me, that, that David feels here. Because David's thankfulness is not rooted in prosperity. David's thankfulness is not rooted in happy and good times. David's thankfulness is rooted in something completely different. Let us read Psalm 52 and think through how we can be thankful even in difficult times. To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from the tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of of the godly. This is the word of our God. First, let us think through the treachery of Doeg. Now, I want to say something very clear. Listen to how I'm saying his name. Let's not besmirch the good name Doug. This is Doeg, okay? It is not Doug. David begins by calling this a masculine. Calvin says this, the term is strictly affixed to psalms which David makes mention of having been chastised by God or at least admonished by some species of affliction. David, in employing it, would evidently insinuate that he was at this time subjected to particular trials, sent to instruct him in the place of duty and absolute trust in God. Indeed, that is what this means. David is being chastised by this. He's going to go through difficult times and he is going to have to learn something from it. The treachery of Doeg is from a story in 1 Samuel. You can go to 1 Samuel verses, or chapter 21 and 22. We'll be reading from 1 Samuel 22 here in just a moment. David has been good to Saul. He has done everything that Saul has asked. Saul has grown jealous of him in his growing insanity and has pursued him out of his house, out of his throne room, and has instead tried to kill David without warrant or out without need. David has found himself to be nothing but 
on the lamb. He, he continues to run and hide in caves. He has no place really to lay his head, and he is completely and totally at the mercy of people around him, including the preset knob. And so he goes to the preset knob, and he tries to get bread for him and a small cohort of men who are going around with him. As he does so, he gets bread, he gets a sword from Ahimelech, and he leaves. But there's a man there that David recognizes. He recognizes Doeg, the Edomite. In chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, we read this beginning in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered after David comes back into the land of Judah. He goes to Moab for a bit, and eventually he comes back by the word of a prophet into the land of Judah. Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gebeah under a tamarisk tree on the heights with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses, or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as at this day. This is honestly the, the ravings of every single dictator lunatic that has ever existed in the world. This is, you could pick this up and plop it in Nazi Germany or in Stalin's Russia, and this is exactly what they sound like. They don't trust anyone around him. And so he comes to the tribe of Benjamin, to his own people, where David has been hiding, and he says, listen, all of you are conspiring against me. What is David going to give you? Why don't you give him over to me? Hand me David, and all will be well. None of you went out of your way to tell me that my son was more of a friend to David than he was a son to me. So give him over to me. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king sent to summon Ahimelech from the, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn, kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. At Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both men and women, child and infants, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put them to the sword. But one of the sons of Elimelech, 
son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks yours. With me you shall be in safe keeping. What a horrible story. Saul is enraged. Ahimelech stands there and says, listen, I don't know how I was supposed to know all of this backstory. This is what I know. David is famously loyal to you. You have famously appointed him as chief of the bodyguards. You have given him your daughter. There's every reason for me to think that what he said when he came here, that he was doing a task for you, was true. You can't hold me accountable for this. But, but Saul, in his blindness and in his insanity and in his anger, doesn't care a lick about any of that. But Saul's servants know better than to strike down the priests of the Lord. But Doeg, who was a foreigner, has no problem with it. David speaks of the treachery of Doeg in clear terms. But oddly enough, when we come to Psalm 52, what it doesn't focus on is the real treachery, it seems like. The real treachery of killing everybody. He slaughters everybody. Second, 1 Samuel 22 is not terribly, well, withholding when it comes to telling us what he killed. Men and women, children, Everybody, everybody he kills with a sword. But in Psalm 52, what David focuses on is not the sword, but the tongue. Notice how David talks here. He says, Your tongue plots destruction, and like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Doag boasts of his evil in verse 1. His tongue is like a sharp razor. Now, there's all kinds of ways that people explain out the the metaphor of his tongue being a sharp razor, but at the very least, it sounds like it's a small sword. It cuts smaller than swords do. It is a little piece of the destruction. As a matter of fact, his tongue is the foundation of the destruction. That's why it's a small sword. It doesn't seem to cut that deeply, but it kills. If it weren't for the words of Doeg, the sword of Doeg would have been given no occasion to act. Friends, this is one of the reasons why Scripture warns us so mightily about using our mouths for things that are good and not things that are evil. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like a sword thrusting, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Later in that same chapter, in verse 25 of the 12th chapter of Proverbs, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In each of these cases, you can destroy people with your tongue, and it is the use of the tongue that occasions the use of violence, more often than not in human history. Our words matter, and there are no small things. David goes on and he talks about the fact that Doeg was loving evil more than good, lying more than what is right. Listen, there's a couple of things that are really interesting about that. First of all, according to the words of 1 Samuel 22, Doeg, if placed in a modern courtroom, would not have committed any sort of perjury. 
As a matter of fact, he told Saul precisely what the first Samuel had already reported happened. All his words were incredibly truthful. But David looks at him and says, you were lying when you said that. Listen, lying is not just saying what is untruthful, but lying also means the implications of what you're saying being taken the wrong way. Doeg knew very well when he told Saul, who is clearly insane by this point and filled with anger and rage, when he told Saul, David was down with Ahimelech. The very notion of that to Saul would be that Ahimelech has betrayed me. Doeg didn't need to say those words. The implication was there the whole time. And so David looks at him and says, you've lied. Friends, just speaking the truth is not what we are about. Because even more important than that, what David turns around to say is not that you love lying more than speaking what is true, but you love lying more than speaking what is right. And you're not just called to speak the truth. As a matter of fact, there are times when you are told to not speak the truth. Rumors can be true. Gossip can be true. Slander can actually be true. But you are still meant to keep your mouth shut about that kind of stuff. You are to speak what is right and what is good, not simply what is true. Doeg loved to devour with his tongue. He uses his words to prop himself up and devour those who got in his way. Friends, this whole setup is the opposite of what it means to give thanks. Giving thanks to God is an indication that you are content with what God has given you. You are content with the things that God has provided for you, and you realize that you don't deserve one of them, let alone any of them. And so you offer up thanks to God because you know that it is only by grace and mercy that God gives you breath and life and food and clothing and any of it. So you offer up thanks to God, but Doeg instead goes out of his way to kill people that he might advance in the kingdom of Saul. The reason why David focuses so much on his speech is because it is antithetical to the only thing that David is said to say in this psalm. I will thank you forever. Anytime, friends, anytime that we forget to give thanks, Doeg's treachery is ours. We prop ourselves up. We think that we are the ones who give us everything. Instead of seeking refuge in God, we seek refuge in our own destruction. We seek refuge in our own might. We seek refuge in our own evil works and our own ability. When we refuse to give thanks to God, we might not cause the death of 84 people, but we will cause the death of ourselves. We go from Doeg's treachery to the thanks of David. Well, the first portion of the psalm is all about what Doeg says. The second part focuses on verse 9. I will thank you forever. The question is, what does David thank him for? The very next line in verse 9 is, because you have done it. Which isn't terribly helpful. Because what is it? Because you have done it. That, mm, what is it? The it, I think, is one stanza up when he says, I will trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. You have shown steadfast love to your people. That is what it is. God continues to show steadfast love to his people. Now, it's easy for David to say that. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, 
David got out alive. What about the poor priests that died? What about the poor women who died and the children and the infants who died? Yeah, that's, that's a problem. But you have to remember, David's not out of the fire yet. Saul wasn't even really all that angry at them. Think of what he's going to do to David when he catches him. How would David escape? David, when he writes this, says that this happens when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul. It doesn't seem like this is written long after the fact. This isn't written 20 years worth of reflection back on the Doeg incident. This seems to be written when Doeg has done this, when David is still in the pit of trouble here. Saul still is breathing out fire for him. Saul is still hunting him. But all the same, David claims that the steadfast love of the Lord is there. Listen, what power do we have besides this? What refuge do we have besides God's steadfast love for us in this world? What will give you solid rock ground beneath you when storms hit? What will help you weather the difficulties of life beside knowing the steadfast love of God is with you? When people mistreat you, when friends betray you, when marriage fails you, when health fails you, when everything is going to pot around you, what will hold you still and steady if not the steadfast love of God? Verse 7, the indication is that Those who do not give thanks do not seek refuge in God, but they trust themselves. David trusts in the steadfast love of God, and therefore he takes refuge in God. Again, we are called continually to give thanks to God because God's steadfast love is always upon us. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, what are the sufferings of this time? Paul will go on to say, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written for your sake? We are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is... That is suffering and persecution. That is the sufferings that are not worth comparing to the future glory, Paul says. He says, no, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The steadfast love of God is sure. Nothing can separate you from it. Nothing can remove you from it. Peter sought to remind his own readers of this very reality in 1 Peter 1, 3-9. Verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, this great salvation, this great inheritance kept in heaven for you. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've grieved, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, although it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, you rejoice, and at the bottom he says, with inexpressible joy, and in the middle of all of that joy, there is this line of suffering that these people are going through. Yet God is steadfast for them. He has kept all the good things that they need. The whole book of Revelation Although many people use it for various things, can be summed up in one thing. Your sufferings are worth it. Maintain your faith. God will have victory. His 
surefire son has won the victory once and for all. So if you persevere, you will be more than conquerors. That is the purpose of the book of Revelation. We do this only because Christ not only gives us the example of how to persevere, but he also allows us and gives us hope that we might persevere. Again, 1 Peter 2. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Who signed up for that? You've been called, friend, if you are a Christian, to be mistreated and to suffer it gladly. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. I can't tell you how important that verse is when you suffer. Christ laid an example down for all believers so that when you suffer, you don't think that God is not going to make this right. His steadfast love endures forever. Christ shows us that even in the midst of death, God's steadfast love endures forever. He was able to put up, not revile, not call down threats. He was able to sit there and to take all of the punishment that men could meet out because he entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Verse 24, Peter goes on to say, He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He not only provides us an example, but he provides us a means of obtaining the steadfast love of God. We have the steadfast love of God only by entrusting ourselves to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Only by that can we ever, ever claim the steadfast love of God. And so, the outcome for David, who entrusted himself to the promises of God, is not like the outcome from Doeg. Doeg will be snatched and torn. He will be broken down forever. He will be uprooted. Notice that language. You'll be uprooted from the tent. It actually says from his tent, but his is not really there. You'll be uprooted from your tent or his tent, but it should just be, you'll be uprooted from the tabernacle. The tent, same word. Because notice what David says. He says, I am like a green olive tree. I'm not a dying olive tree. I am a rich olive tree in the house of my Lord. Now that's weird because I don't have a tree in my house. If I do, it's like one of those fake ones. It's really ugly. But David says, I'm planted and I am, I'm a rich olive tree in the house of my Lord. I am rooted. I am living in the house of my Lord. Normal olive tree, 25 foot tall. The ancients are never by themselves able to dig up that tree. Those roots are too big. They might cut it down, but David will never be uprooted. And even as we read in Isaiah, you cut down the tree, there is a new sprout that will come up. David will never be uprooted. He will always exist in the house of God. Doeg, meanwhile, will not only be uprooted, but he will be taken out of the tent. He will not be found in Israel anymore. But why? Why can David trust in this God this way? 
that brings us to the third thing, the traits of God. We know why David is thankful to God. David is thankful to God for the steadfast love of the Lord, but that only leads to a further question is why, given the suffering here, given the indeterminate ending here, Doeg is never mentioned again. He's never mentioned again. We have read every passage that ever refers to Doeg in the Bible. There is no indication that what David says here ever came to fruition. There is no indication that Doeg did not leave the rest of his life out in happy ignorance of the result of what he had done. How can David trust in the steadfast love of the Lord, given all of that backstory? It's very simple. Because David knew God. I hope you're catching a theme as we work through it. By the way, this was not a theme that I intentionally meant to draw out of every single one of our sermons through this. In every case, your prayers are impacted by knowing God. If you don't know God well, you will not pray well. If you know who God is, if you study his word to find out who he is, if you listen to the revelation of him giving out an idea of who he is, man, your prayers will be impacted by that. We talked in Matthew 6 about knowing who God is, why you don't have to babble to God. You don't have to make him hear you. He longs to hear you. He is capable of hearing you. He listens to his elect. We talked in Exodus 32 about the fact that Moses comes before God and interceding for other people because he knows God will be faithful to his promises. We talked about Psalm 51 last week about God being faithful to give to David what he wants out of a contrite heart, to give him forgiveness, to give him a new heart. God is willing to do that because David knows who he is and how he works. And even here, David relies on the very nature and the person of who God is. God's attributes permeate this psalm. It might not seem like it at first reading, but it permeates this psalm. First, God is unchangeable. He is immutable. Doeg seems to be victorious here, but David immediately notes, immediately notes in in a statement that is frankly out of place, In the very first verse, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Listen, he just butchered 84 people. And David stands up in front of God and man and says, no, but God's steadfast love endures. Your sword didn't put an end to it. He knows that God doesn't change. God didn't just today of all day say, well, okay, my steadfast love usually endures, but what we're going to do is we're just going to take a pause from it. We're just going to let bad things happen and see what would happen. What if, I, what if I pulled back my steadfast love? David says that doesn't happen. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not like this. Listen, I, I try to be consistent, but I'm a fickle man. My, my punishments for my kids change from one day to the next. My rewards for my kids change one day to the next. My, I'm not consistent with my relationships with other people. Sometimes I'm good about getting back to people. Sometimes All of us are like this, but God is not like this. God does not change. He is steadfast every day. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is no shadow or turning of turning within God. He is immutable. He is all-powerful. David holds out no hope for Doeg here. He's not going to get away from what he has done. He's not going to be able to crawl back to Saul and hide behind Saul and think that he's going to get away with what he's done because Saul can protect him. Saul ain't protecting Doeg. 
God is just. God is always just. Kids were at VBS this week at a separate church, a church that can speak of nothing, nothing but the love of God. They, they don't want to ever make it seem like God is angry or wrathful. Listen, what a pipe dream that is. And what horrible news for almost anywhere but Midland, Michigan. That kind of stuff completely rejects or ignores or is totally, totally ignorant of the suffering that people undergo in the world, whether in North Korea, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, in South America, the total suffering that human beings put other people in to think that they don't deserve justice from God. I guarantee you, if any one of their children was taken and destroyed the way so many children in this world are taken and destroyed, they would not cry out for a God who forgives, but they would cry out for a God of justice. It is good, friends, that God is just. He always does what is right, and he always punishes correctly. Doeg is a man who loves to devour, so God will break him down. He longed to ingratiate himself to Saul, to get into Saul's camp, to get into Saul's company, to be with Saul. So what will God do? He will remove him from the tabernacle. He will remove him from his tent. He will remove him from his place of stability. He wants to graft himself in. God will chop him off. God also has self-existence. God doesn't need anybody else. He doesn't need Saul to change his mind so that God can bring punishment. He doesn't need human governments to hand out justice. God will handle it all himself, thank you. He doesn't need to wait until David is appointed king and then David can hand out justice. He doesn't need the United States to give an end to oppression. God will do it. In all of this, God is faithful. Even after these horrific events. It is enough for David to say, his love endures. God's character, and only God's character, not the events of the world, not, not your outlook on life. David doesn't rest in justice that he can see with his eyes. This is, frankly, nothing but a statement of faith. This is not a statement of fact. This is not hindsight, looking back here. It is only because David sees the world through the eyes of faith, because he knows his God, that he can say what he says in the psalm. God's character is what assures David that even in the worst of circumstances, that evil won't prevail, that good won't be overcome, that the sin of wicked men won't flourish, that the wicked will not gain victory over those who are righteous, that might and swords will eventually not prevail in this world, that deceit will not be proclaimed over what is right, that violence will not cut off the peaceful, that insanity will not rule over faith, that oppression will not reign over justice. Only God 
And knowing who God is will ever give you assurance of those things when you go through difficult times. And only by knowing God and knowing who he is will you ever be able to utter thanks to God when everything breaks against you. And friend, I guarantee you, in this time, you might be fine. And the seas might be calm, but the storms will come. And you are required to know your God so that when those storms come, you can give thanks to God even in the midst of those trials. All of God's attributes, everything that we want to know about God, we want to see in perfect clarity, we can find it at the cross. We find God's anger and his wrath, his love and his justice, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, his power, his goodness, all of them are met at the cross of Jesus Christ. You have nowhere else to look. If you want to know who God is like, you look at the cross. You look at the Trinitarian relationship of what is going on at the cross as the Father hands his Son over to be crushed so that he might pour out his love upon a lost and dying world and give his Spirit then to regenerate those people who would trust in him and give themselves to him. That he might show his long-suffering and his steadfast love to even sinful people. Build your life on the work of God and the cross so that when storms rage, winds thrash, floods overwhelm, you will stand and you will say, God's steadfast love endures all the day, and I will give thanks to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for all that you do for us. We overlook so much of all of the good that you've handed to us, but let us not overlook our Lord Jesus Christ and his great grace and, and the gift of life that he has given to us by his own suffering on the cross. Father, we do not just want vengeance and justice upon those who oppress us, but we want them to know exactly what we know. We want them to know forgiveness and grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let peace, let justice, let truth roll out like the many waters down a hill. Your name might be proclaimed into the end of the earth, that your salvation might be known by your people. We pray, Father, that we will always give you thanks. That come hell or high water, we will understand the goodness of what you have given to us. And thanks will be the first thing on our lips. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.